0: In the last few weeks, we've explored the process by which the Talmud Bavli came to be viewed and came to be considered and accepted as not only a collection of extremely important interpretations of the Torah, but for practical purposes is treated by Poskim as a canonical text in and of itself. We noted that this is quite surprising, as in theory the only canonical text should be the Torah. And in the three-part process that we described for post scheme, the three factors that they analyze, their interpretation of canonical sources, their weighing of previous interpretations of those sources, and an understanding of the practice of halakha, of the custom, that has emerged, the most weight in a theoretical world should be given to the interpretation of those canonical sources, and again, that should only be the Torah. However, as we noted, For practical purposes, the Mishnah, the Bavli, and perhaps other works of Chazal as well, have been moved into the category of primary sources. This forces us to ask the question, however, for practical purposes, not theoretical ones, not conceptual ones, what is the role of Chumash? Again, while obviously any Poseik will agree that the most fundamental text of Halakha is the Torah, for most Sheilot, when a posik is attempting to determine the Halakha, he doesn't open the Chumash and attempt to understand what Hashem wants directly from the Chumash. He does that mediated by the interpretations of Chazal. We're then faced with the irony that the Mishnah and the Gemara, which started out as a collection of interpretations meaning of precedent in how to understand the canonical sources, became, essentially, the canonical source that is uh, that is addressed, that is analyzed by Poskim, and the Chumash, which, at the deepest level, is that primary text, is the text that the Mishnah and the Gemara are trying to interpret, has become less practical as a text of halacha in an unmediated sense. Meaning, most post-game, when they're attempting to determine the halakha, will try to understand the psukim as understood by Chazal, and then rule accordingly. What we would like to understand now is, to what extent is the statement I just said true? Now, I want to dispel um, the possibility of, uh, of of certain possibilities of what I'm talking about. I am not addressing the question here of whether it is legitimate to offer halachic interpretations of the Torah against those interpretations of Chazal. My starting point is obviously that that is improper; that that is forbidden. Once Chazal have offered a halachic interpretation of the of a, of a pasuk, we are bound by that interpretation, and even those commentaries such as Rashbam who were willing to explain what the pshat might be, even if it contradicted the position of Chazal, when it came to practical purposes, and again, as the purpose of our series is to understand the process of practical Psak, when it came to practical Psak the Rashbamid agreed unequivocally that whatever Chazal said was binding, and no other halachic interpretation that challenged that of Chazal could have any weight. Again, that is my starting point, that if there is an interpretation offered by Chazal that is binding, and any interpretation offered which is contrary to the vision of Chazal is, for halachic purposes, wrong. My question is slightly different, or in fact, radically different. My question is, what if there is a interpretation of a Pasuk which a later commentary understands in a particular way that is neither weighed in on, in support or against by Chazal? Does that independent interpretation of the psukim have any weight? That's the question that we will address today. Now I will note one more point before we get into that question, and that is the following. Even if one concludes, as we'll see many commentaries indeed do, that Nowadays, once we have Khatibata Talmud, once we've accepted the Bavli as binding, one can no longer offer new interpretations of the Torah for halachic purposes. Even if one believes that is so, the Rambam the Rambam felt that understanding in a deep way and being cognizant of the way in which the interpretations of Chazal. Are in fact interpretations of the Torah is central to the process of Talmud Torah. In Perik Aleph Alach Yud Aleph, Talmud Torah, the Raman writes as follows: One must divide the time of his learning a third in Miktav, meaning Tanach, a third in Tarashabalpeh, and then he defines the third category, what he calls Gemara. As follows Ushlish, one third of his time skill Davar must be <coughs> devoted to understanding and conceptualizing the ultimate derivation of a concept from its roots. The davar davar, davar inferring one concept from another, comparing concepts, the and understand using the principles of Biblical exegesis, meaning the principles of Chazal, until one appreciates the essence of those principles and how the prohibitions and the things that are permitted and other decisions were which were received by the oral tradition, how we... Derived those laws. That for the Rambam is Gemara. And therefore, you see for the Rambam that it is not sufficient, even again, even if we were to conclude, as many Mefarshim will, that for practical purposes. Despite the fact that the Torah is the ultimate canonical source, the ultimate source for all of our laws, for practical purposes, we only understand it halachically through the lens of Chazal's interpretation. It is not, therefore, legitimate for us to not attempt to understand how Chazal derived those laws. Many people, when they study Halachar, they study Gemara, when they get to the sections of Drashot, when they get to the sections in which Chazal attempt to actually explain how they traced the Halacha from the Chumash, from the Dvar Hashem, through the practical rulings that they offer in the Gemara, their eyes glaze over, and they skip to the conceptual parts, they assume that we have no understanding of the nature of Drashot, and they just trust Chazal. Of course, we should trust Chazal for halachic purposes. But as the Rambam notes, it is critical to the process of Talmud Torah to remember and, in fact, actively engage in the reality of Torah Sheval Peh. And the reality of Torah Sheval Peh is that it is in a fundamental sense, a series of interpretations of the Chumash. And therefore, for us to forget that, to not engage in the process and really understand how those midot, chatar, and jereshe how those principles lead from the ultimate canonical source, from the Torah, from the Chumash, to Halakha Lema'aseh, is giving up on a fundamental element of what the Rambam calls Gemara. So again, even if we conclude that we have entered a period in which the ultimate canonical source, the ultimate primary text is no longer an open source for us to derive new halachot and Chazal's interpretations in the Mishnah and the Gemara, which started as interpretations or for practical purposes the only primary text that we will turn to to derive halacha, to stop there and not attempt to understand how we trace the halakha from the ultimate primary source through the interpretations would be a fundamental lack in our understanding of Torah. With that said, now let's move to the practical question. Is it legitimate for later generations to interpret the Torah on psukim that Chazal don't weigh in one way or another? Is it legitimate for later generations, to offer halachic interpretations, and if they do, is there any weight to those interpretations? Now, most people who've learned in yeshivot probably think that this question is surprising, and they take it as a giving that the answer to this question is no. And in fact, many commentaries take this approach. For example, the Stechemed. In Klalea Poskim Ted Zion Ot Nun writes Drashot Ein ain Lasot V'Avshim Sad Drashot Zol Inyan Acher Ein Midatin We cannot make our own derivations, and even if we find a derivation in shas for one purpose in one context, we can't expound from it to similar cases. Meaning, not only can we not offer halachic interpretations that simply come to us as we are reading the Torah, we can't even take a drashah of Chazal, look at a very similar or almost identical case elsewhere in the Torah that Chazal did not weigh in on, and apply the halachic conclusion from the first context to the second one. <coughs> and this is in fact a very common approach. However... As is often the case, the best way to discover that there is an opposing position is to look at those same works that set down this very firm rule. And in fact, if you continue in that beast in the Steichemed, after having asserted with confidence that we are not allowed, that it is not legitimate for a posaic, to interpret the Torah in any way that Chazal did not understand it, and any pasuk in which Chazal did not weigh in halachically, we can no longer offer halachic interpretation of that pasuk. He then writes in shock that he has found many poskim that do seem to do this, that they do seem to expound halachic rulings based on their own understanding of psukim. And he spends this piece challenging them on the assertion, on the assumption, that such a move is an illegitimate halachic practice. is an illegitimate halachic move. But, from his encyclopedic (coughs) knowledge of those who disagree with him, you discover that, in fact, it is not so simple. That there are many gim who, in fact, felt that it was not as clear-cut that while it's true that we've accepted the interpretations of Chazal as binding and we cannot rule against them in cases in which Chazal did not weigh in, it is legitimate for us to invoke our own interpretations of Halakha. Several of the Rishonim noted that and the Akronim, but even the Rishonim already noted that perhaps the most important voice who seems to do this who seems to, in fact, offer halachic interpretations not offered by Chazal and give them halachic weight is the Rambam. So, for example, <coughs> the Rambam in Parak Bet Halacha Gimel deals with the following: in the Gemara, there is no indication as to whether—and this may be surprising to some—whether human flesh. Is kosher or not kosher, and if it's forbidden, why that would be case? Why that would be the case? The Rambam attempts to understand it, uh, to offer a halachic ruling, and he writes as follows: Adam afal marbo vahi adam lenevesh chaya enu michal minei chaya balad parsah vefichach enu It cannot be that the prohibition to eat human flesh is Categorized under the prohibition of non-kosher animals because a person is not an animal, and therefore, if one were to eat human flesh, one would not receive lashes. Aval, and here's where the Rambam introduces a drasha. Aval, asuru it is forbidden by dint of a positive commandment, meaning it is not a prohibition, but there is a positive command from which we derive a prohibition because the Torah counts, enumerates seven types of animals and said these are the beasts which you can partake of the Rambam introduces a law and says that the Torah enumerates the beasts, the chayot, that are permitted to eat. And from here, you learn that anything that's not enumerated there is forbidden by a ichalase, an implied prohibition that emerges from a positive commandment. Now this drasha, as we just said, does not appear anywhere in Shas. And yet, the Rambam offers it. And here, the simplest understanding of the Rambam is that he believed (coughs) that in a case where Chazal do not weigh in, do not offer a halachic interpretation one way or another, it is legitimate to offer halachic interpretations of the Psukim, and in fact rule in accordance with them. And here he introduces a Lava Bami Chalasei. This is not simply my interpretation of the Rambam, but this is the interpretation of the Ra'a the ra'ah in his commentary to Ktubot Samach, notes that the rambam seems to introduce this new drasha and he writes this is shocking little on the midrash cried rabanan we are not allowed to expound verses that the sages did not and here you see this machloket you see this dispute that at least how the ra'ah understood it he stands in fundamental disagreement with the Rambam about what it means that there was Timar Talmud. The Rambam seems comfortable with offering his own interpretations, again, not against Chazal, but simply offering interpretations of the Pesukim that Chazal never weighed in in cases where Chazal simply did not weigh in, and rule in accordance with that for practical halachic purposes. The Ra'ah, on the other hand, rejects this entire methodological move. And again, this is similar <coughs> to the phenomenon that we noted in the Stei Hamid before. The way one knows that the Rambam seems to offer a second approach, a different path than the Raha, is because the Ra'an noted it and argued on it. Similarly, as we noted from the Stei Chemet. The Stei Hamid is so convinced that this is an illegitimate halachic move, that he's willing to list many, many boskim who seem to have done exactly what he says is prohibited in the context of his arguing. But again, from here you see that, in fact, this issue is not nearly as clear-cut as it seems. Now, what is behind the position of the Ra'ah, the Stei and others who believe that, in fact, this is an illegitimate halachic move? That the only halachic interpretations that have any weight are those that were already offered by Chazal, and not those that we offer, <coughs> even cases where Chazal did not weigh in. Now, it could simply be that they understand that we're not smart enough, that we are not intelligent enough to expound the psukim ourselves. Alternatively, perhaps they understand that any drasha that Chazal would have given uh, or believed was halachically true, they already offered. And therefore, in this particular case, lack of evidence is evidence of lack. Meaning, the fact that Chazal did not offer that interpretation and were so wise, the fact that he didn't offer it is proof that this drasha must not be correct. A more formal approach emerges from the position of the Chazunesh, which we've already alluded to in our discussions of the binding nature of the Bavli. Commenting on a very surprising, or very cryptic Gemara in Avodazara Daftet, he writes as follows. The Gemara there writes, Tana Sheishet Alafim Shana The world is 6,000 years, will last for 6,000 years. Shnei Tahu, the first 2,000 are defined as the generations of desolation, or the years of desolation. Shnei al-a-fim Torah, the middle 2,000 years are the years of Torah. And Shnei alafim Mashiach, the last 2,000 years are the messianic days. Now, every line, every part of this discussion is quite cryptic. But let's just focus on that middle section. What does it mean that the middle 2,000 years of the world are the years of Torah? And the Chazanesh here writes that what it means is as follows. V'nei ayat tsarich y'kava b'shnei alafim Torah ve'in Torah chadasha achereihem. This is the Chazanesh in Hilchot (coughs) Shrevot. Hey Gimel. And the Chazanesh writes that what it means that the shnei alafim are Torah, that the middle 2,000 years of the world are the years of Torah, It means that for whatever reason, for whatever metaphysical reason, it was established that only in that period can Torah be created. After that, the process of Torah study will be one of interpretation. But the era in which interpretation of the Torah can be offered, such that it becomes a chefza of Torah, a new primary source of torah a new primary text of torah that could only happen within the first 2 the, the second 2000 years rather of the world the 2000 years of torah and if one counts that more or less is the time of the writing of the Mishnah may be a little bit in to the writing of the Talmud, and approximately we will describe why it is that the Tukufah of Chazal is the last era in which the Chazunesh believes that new halachic interpretations can be offered of the Psukim. Now, we won't go through too many examples of, of this, uh, this dispute, um, for those who are interested in further reading on this, they can see Yitzchak Gilat's Prakim Bish pages 375 to 393, as well as the Or Samech Ha'alachao Mishpat by Yitzchak Kohen. Um, in both of these works, they note that these disputes continue into many modern discussions of psak. Um, we will name just a few. To offer one example, the Nitziv in his Chuvot, Meshiv um, Davar, suggests that while the Torah, while the Gemara understands that honoring one's parents consists of two mitzvot, kibura avaim and mora avaim, fear and honor, loosely translated, with kavod basically mapping on to the positives and morah to the negatives, he believes that there is in fact a third mitzvah. There is a third obligation involved, what he calls makle. The first two obligations, which Chazal derive, are from psukim, which are either kabeid avi mecha, which tell you that you should honor, or from the word tirau, in a different pasuk that you shall fear them. The pasuk to which the Nitziv Points is in the Klalot section, Sefer Dvarim, where it says that one is cursed if he. Makla. What exactly Makle means is not 100% clear, but one who is Makle's parents is cursed. Then a Tsiv essentially understands this as one who degrades. Based on this, then Tsiv argues that while the general consensus of halakha is that a parent does not have the right to impose on a child something that is not for the benefit of the parents. So, for example, the maharik, which is nifzak l'halakha and the ramah, rules that a parent cannot tell a child, (coughs) a father cannot tell a son who not to marry, because at the end of the day, that is a question which relates to the child's life and not the parent's. And itziv argues that if it would cause the parent extreme degradation, then perhaps it would, it would be prohibited under this category called makle, meaning it isn't un, indeed simply wanting your child to not marry someone is not something that one can demand through kibud or morah, But if marrying a certain person, if your child marrying a certain person would cause you extreme degradation, then it might be a violation of makleh, and therefore it would be legitimate for a parent to demand that of their child. Ravavadi Yosef (coughs) does not accept this conclusion at all, and in fact goes to great lengths to explain how one could accept in theory the Nitziv without it having any practical uh, implications. But the fact remains that the Nitziv entertained the possibility that while Chazal introduced only two obligations in the realm of honoring parents, perhaps there's a third which, as we have noted, may have very significant halachic implications. <coughs> <coughs> Now, there are cases, which are even more surprising in the Rambam, in which, at least as understood by certain achronim, the Rambam derives new not only from chumash, but even, in a certain sense, from the nevi'im. The Sameach, especially in several places, understands the Rambam in this way. So, for example, in Shmuel Bet, Perak Aleph, the Psukim tell us as follows, Vayyom Reilav David, When speaking to the Nara who tells David that he killed Shaul, David tells him, how could it be that you had the gall? How are you not afraid to stick out your hand and kill the Anointed One of God? So he tells one of his youths, one of the lads, kill him. And he does. David said, "The blood was on your own head." Because you were the one who said that you killed the anointed one of God. <coughs> now the Or suggests that these psukim are the basis for a halacha in the following halacha in the Rambam. <coughs> In Hilchor Rotech Shmir Nefesh, Perik Beda, the Raman writes, Echad HaOregit HaBari, O Edachol Lehan HaTelamut, Vafil HaRagit one who kills a healthy person, or a sick person, even if he is on the verge of dying, or even a goseis, meaning <coughs> someone in his actual death throes, he is killed. Vimaya goseis bidei haDam, kugon sheikuu at shanata laMut, goseis, haregoto ein bidein memitinoto. If, however, one kills a person in his death throes because of wounds inflicted upon him by others, i.e., he was stricken until he was on the verge of death, and he's in his death throes, the killer should not be executed by the court. So, where does the Rambam get this distinction? There's a difference between a goseis, someone who's in death throes, and one who's in death throes because of an externally inflicted wound. So, the Orsameach writes as follows Vidam. The question of a goseis in general of a is a machloket in the Gemara. and the Raman pa- pa- rules
1: that
0: you are pa- patur. Your Sameach writes as follows. The Rambam is very careful in his language. He writes that if one is a Goseis bide Adam, again, the question of, I think I misspoke before, but the question of a Goseis Adam is a machloket in the Gemara, <coughs> whether you can be put to death by the Din. But the Gemara doesn't clarify that it's only by a din. But the Rambam is very careful in his language and says that it's only a din who can't kill him. The Orsameach understands the Rambam as offering an implied he can't be killed by a but it would be legitimate, halachically, ethically, for a king to decide to put such a person to death. And therefore explains that the Rambam, based on this understanding of the story, in Nach, was carefully framing his language to limit the interpretation of the Gemara specifically to the right of beidin or the responsibilities of beidin to kill this murderer, to put this murderer to death, but was allowing the possibility that a king would be allowed to. And in fact, the Tzitzeliezer quotes the Zorsamech in a halachic context in in And therefore you see, and there are many other examples of this, where, again, in this case it's not nearly as clear as it was in the case of the prohibition to eat human flesh. Here the Or Sameach is reading the Rambam as making a specific halachic claim based on interpretation of Navi, which the Rambam doesn't even quote, but that only emphasizes the point. That there are there as much as certain poskim like the raah, like the stechem, and believe that it was never legitimate to use independent interpretation of psukim to offer halachic rulings. the are even in cases when the Rambam doesn't explicitly say it has diukim in the Rambam, which he assumes are based on the Rambam's interpretation, independent interpretation of psukim. And what's more surprising, or is not only of chumash but even of Navi. Now there are other examples of this, and if one is interested in seeing this again one can refer to those Swarim <clears throat> that we mentioned before. Before we conclude though, I will note that even if indeed <coughs> one takes the more limiting approach and one does not believe that we can offer binding halakhic interpretations of Psukim Not in the Chumash, and for sure not in Navi or Ktuvim, that weren't offered by Chazal. That doesn't mean that there is no sense in which Chumash is still a practical work of Halacha, because there there are two ways in which I think that everyone can agree that we can still turn to the Torah, not just as the theoretical primary source upon which the interpretation of Chazal are based, but as a source to which we can look for for practical rulings. What do I mean? I mean as follows. The Ramban in two places, in very famous passages, both in Parshat ToShim and in Parshat Vatchanan, writes that the methodology of the Torah was not to articulate every possible practical case that would ever come up. Meaning the strict letter of Halachic law does not cover every case in the world. Therefore the Torah introduces several overarching mitzvot Kedoshim to you, essentially in the context of bin Adam Lamakom <coughs> and Vasitaya Shervatov should do the right and the good in the context of Bin Adam La where the Torah tells you that You should follow the spirit of the law and not just the letter. As the Ramban writes in that second context, It is impossible for the Torah to make a laundry list of every single thing that you should do or not do to your neighbors. So what does it do? After it mentioned many, it tells you that you should do the right and the good, that you should compromise, act beyond the letter of the law, and the like. (coughs) The way Rami Menachem Leibtag once summarized this is that the Ramban imagines that the Torah is essentially a connect the dots picture. The mitzvot are the dots, 613 of them. But the picture that emerges from those dots is the spirit of the law. Is Vasita Yashivatov G'doshim And what the Ramban tells you is that the values, the emergent values from those plot points, from the mitzvot, are binding by dint of these overarching mitzvot of Kedoshim to you, which tell you, don't suffice with the letter of the law, but pay attention to the Spirit. And in that sense, I think everyone can agree that even if we think that you cannot offer new interpretations of the psukim not offered by Chazal, it is, of course, legitimate and obligatory in the cases of Gray, in the cases where there is no firm halachic answer one way or the other, and the question is, what is right in line of the spirit of the Torah, there it is perfectly legitimate and, in fact, obligatory to look back at the Torah, look at the chumash, and get a feel for what the Torah wants. Of course, here you are aided by the interpretations of Chazal, but reading the Torah is critical in that sense to gain that Intuition of the spirit of the law, and this is not just true of law, but it's also true of narrative. The Nozibihuda, in a celebrated shuva about hunting, writes that it is not prohibited to hunt from a technical letter of the law, but he thinks it is wrong. It's wrong to be a hunter. And he says, why? He says, I'm shocked about this. We have not found hunters, except for Nimrod and this is not the way of the children of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And again, the note of Yehuda here is not offering a strict halachic interpretation. In fact, he spends most of the Chufa arguing that on strict halachic grounds, hunting could be justified. His purpose in tshuva is to say that in addition to the letter of the law, there is a spirit of the Torah, and here he means not just a spirit of the law, but a spirit of the narratives of Chumash that have, if not formal halachic weight, have normative weight in the sense that this is something we should do. And therefore I think that even... If, as I said, one accepts the more limiting interpretations of people like the Ra'a and the Stechemed and believes that one should not offer new halachic interpretations of the Psukim, and that is not a legitimate halachic move, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain ways that are still open to us in which the Chumash is still a practical source of law, not just as we started with, to understand how Chazal derived laws from it, but as an independent source which we can look to to formulate opinions and position about what we should do, the, the Ramban and the Yehuda note that when it comes to determining not what is the Halacha, but what does the Torah want from us, what's the spirit of the law, what are the spirit of the narratives, which again may not have Halachic weight, but as the Rambam describes in Peresh HaMishnayot in Avot, the Torah is interested in five levels. At the extremes, Asur and Chayav, but prohibited and uh, obligatory. In the middle, it also has michuar It has things which are bad, disgusting, and things which are praiseworthy, that have value, have weight, even if, again, we can't ascribe the formal term of Asur or Chayav to it. And I think the Ramban and the Yehuda remind us that in that sense, it is obviously the case that Chumash continues to be not just the source of our Halakha because of the interpretations of Chazal, but a text that we look to to guide in a practical sense our lives in the cases where it's gray and where the Torah and for sure that the interpretation of Chazal could not exhaust every possible case that we will face in life.